You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing, positive impact on their city and the world. Uh, in multiple occasions, I've, I've given equity back and I've allocated to someone else because I'm like, I'm not comfortable. If I had a company and someone held that, then the expectation, I'd expect them to do more. And I can't do that, therefore let's fix this problem, let's fix it now. Matt Allen, or Matter, is a Melbourne Angel investor and multiple business founder who enjoys nothing better than drawing the magic out of a group of people working on a new business venture. Co-working, recruitment and tech startups before and after the dot-com bust, Matter has some great insights into ensuring that relationships and conversations support rather than squander new business ventures. I'm Adam Murray and thanks for joining me as I talk with Matter about the subtle disruption of founding a startup. Tell us a bit about this space. Where are we today? Yeah, sure. So uh, today we're uh, in a co-working space called Team Square that I am uh, an investor in, uh, run by Michael and Kath Shimmons. Um, it's on the corner of Burke and William Street here in uh, Sydney. Uh, Sydney, Melbourne. Whoops. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's uh, a beautiful old four-storey bluestone building, uh, of which we have level one and level four. Yep. Um, Team Square sort of came about when uh, Michael... Uh, sort of got a larger office than he needed before this one um, and sort of rented it out with some other startups. So Team Square is a place that um, you know, startups and the people surrounding them can, can come and um, run their businesses from. Uh, right now we're sitting in the large uh, two-story ballroom on it's level beautiful. one. Yeah. Um, that, um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful space. We, we run events in here. Uh, apparently the, the lawyers that were in here before has had nothing besides a large oak table <laughs> for signing documents. Uh, we think that uh, we're using it slightly more uh, for, for better purposes than they did. Yes. Yeah. Do you have ballroom dancing in here? Do you ever have dancing in here? No ballroom dancing. I think when we put the carpet down, yeah, it may have gotten rid of the shiny floor. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is, as a co-working space, how is Team Square different to other co-working spaces? Or what's its thing? Right, so um, co-working spaces have, uh, you know, before co-working spaces and tech startups, there was like serviced offices and they were kind of boring and a bit, you know, a bit uptight. Um, a lot of co-working spaces, <coughs> pardon me, um, can, uh, can be quite hectic, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of stuff going on, uh, which is great for when you're, you know, you're just starting up and maybe you're a single, single founder and you just need to be around a whole bunch of energetic people. Mm. And uh, we felt that there was a need for the next level, which is, you know, we need to get some stuff done. There's probably, um, you know, two or more people. Um, so there's um, uh, part of the here is um, smaller offices, so two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people. Yeah, um, that are all private offices. There's also a shared area as well. And is it mainly tech businesses that are in here? Yeah. Um, yes, and and they're surrounding. So here on level one, there's plenty of um, plenty of startups, um, uh, Australian-based startups who are sort of getting to the point where they've got traction, they've got revenue. Um, you know, things are really starting to to take off. Um, Upstairs on level four, we have Blue Chili, which is a sort of a startup incubator. Uh, we have uh, Interactive Accounting, which are sort of accountants to um, a lot of startups, including small ones and big ones. And they do a lot of capital raising as well. Uh, 
Cogent, which is a software development place, and Look Ahead Search, my company, uh, we help um, build teams. So uh, it's not just for the startups, it's for the people that surround them as well. Um, so, you know, we go quite often coming up and down between levels and having meetings and, and getting together. Um, the shared spaces on all the levels are available for everyone. So quite often people from level one and we go up to level four yeah. to, to, you know, hang out in the meeting rooms up there. There's a big boardroom up there or, and vice versa. We come down here for things like this and, and lots of uh, the smaller meeting rooms as well. So you're an investor in TeamSquare and you've got another business that you work on inside this Yeah, so um, uh, yeah. as of yesterday, um, four of the startups I invest in are under this roof. <laughs> yeah. uh, but my, my day job is Look Ahead Search, uh, which, I've, uh, which is a, a highly technical uh, niche recruiting company. Uh, I run that with my business partner, Steve. He runs a Sydney office and I run the Melbourne office. And yeah. We are focused on, on building highly technical teams and all my staff members are highly technical as well. Okay, so how, how is that different to standard recruitment? It sounds like you're, you put together teams as opposed to finding individuals. Is well, we do saying? find individuals, but my staff members who work with me are all super technical. Right. So we've all built software for our careers. Yeah. And uh, you know, building software, uh, some of us have been doing for 15 years and then decided that it was time to go and do something else. And traditionally, you might go be a project manager or a BA or something like that. Um, um, what we've done is create an environment where they can come and actually help other software people um, improve their careers. Uh, so given that we've all built and delivered software one way or another, um, it allows us to sit down with our clients mm. uh, and really figure out what it is, the problems they're trying to solve. And instead of them sliding a you know, position description across the table and say, go and find me some people, we will quite often you know, get into the nuts and bolts and figure out the problem they're trying to solve and then uh, come up with solutions with them rather than just you know, flicking candidates that happen to walk <laughs> across the radar at that given point in time. Yeah, that does not sound like normal recruitment at all. Is there... Do you have an equivalent to that? Any, or is there, where did this idea come from? Like that sounds uh, quite innovative and disruptive to me. Yeah, so um, Steve uh, Gillis, who started uh, Look Ahead three and a half years ago, uh, nearly four years ago, um, was a developer uh, back in the early days. Um, and we've all sort of either, you know, studied computer science or, or worked in this. So, and he was, um, uh, very focused on the community that I was involved in, you know, the mm. technical community we're involved in, and we all uh, participate heavily in that. Yeah. Um, and you can't invent that. Uh, you know, we, we come out of the community. We don't force the community onto these people. So, you know, traditionally, uh, recruiting is sort of a sales, very heavily sales, um, you know, driven by people running recruiting companies who have uh, consultants who have weird kinds of metrics wrapped around them. Yep. Uh, we don't have any of that. Uh, so the people that we work with are genuinely interested in uh, not only seeing our understanding our clients and the problems they're trying to solve, but also having a deep care for the candidates, given mm. that we've actually you know, been in their position before. Um, you know, the last thing you need when you're trying to, you know, you're wondering what next to do with your career is some um, you know, a uh, hardcore salesperson trying to sell you the wrong damn thing. Um, so right. we just don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And is the response from candidates being quite overwhelming in that regard? Yeah, so uh, we, uh, the, you know, the things that we uh, measure, although it's difficult, you know, if we were to measure, you know, mojo, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, referrals, you know, all our work is referral-based. You know, a lot of our... our, our candidate clients you know uh, just come from people telling 
telling them uh, that we either helped them get, you know, a, a candidate get their job, yeah. uh, and they were when then became a hiring manager, or yeah. you know, or, or they've just um, you know they've moved on and, and sort of taken us with them. Um, yeah. You know, it feels like sometimes it would become like you know their their, their favourite text editor or their or their you know <laughs> deployment tools. It's like when you move jobs, you just take it with you, and they just call us up and go, hey, you know, you know we need some help. Um, in the marketplace as it stands today, you know, the demand is off the charts, the supply is quite low. So, you know, caring about caring about that the people in the middle is 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 the way we do it. Yeah. I mean, you've obviously been in the tech scene in Melbourne for quite some time. Do you mind what's your take on the tech scene in Melbourne? Like what is it what is it like? How is it different to other places? Sure. And you know, what's what's happening? Well, it's actually, um, I've only, only been here for two years, okay. but I was in Sydney for yeah. a long time. So uh, my first, uh, you know, I got into the tech scene in the late, uh, in the, well, in the mid-90s, actually. Um, and my first startup was in 1999, so I've been doing this for a while. Mm -hmm. um, I really like the, the Melbourne tech scene. There's certainly, um, having done a lot of startups um, in Sydney, uh, the first couple of startups were up there um, yeah. before startups were even a thing, but even as they sort of became a thing that people were talking about. Um, I think the Melbourne scene is, um, is really interesting. There's a lot of people quietly going about their business up here, uh, down here. Um, whereas sometimes it can quite often feel like it might be a little bit shiny uh, up, in, up in Sydney. I mean, I, I love Sydney. I grew up in Sydney. I'm, I'm a Sydney, you know, that's where I, I started my career and my life. Um, but things like the harbour and stuff are just, they're just shiny. Mm. Down here there just seems to be, yeah, look, we don't have much shiny, but we're getting some shit done. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I lived in Sydney for a while as well, and that's kind of my take on it too. Oh, yeah, um, things. I've talked about this in another podcast actually, but things tend to happen faster in Sydney, but they're a little bit more thoughtful mm. in Melbourne. Oh well, I mean, thoughtful. Yeah, that's a an interesting point too. I think that um, you know, down in Melbourne, uh, when we're doing our recruiting and and the tech stuff as well, yeah, it takes a little while longer to get into something but once you enter it it's it, it's quite obvious that that's uh, you know it can be a long a long a long thing yeah i mean what is bubbling away in melbourne as well that you see like what's some of the interesting things that are happening in the tech world uh yeah so um given that i span these two worlds which is you know sort of technology and the the biggest startups if you will the you know the people like you know the envados and the the real estate.com that I use and stuff who are, who are you know doing massive things and the new entrants that are coming in from overseas so you know Zendesk is here Slack mm. is coming you know GoPro all these big things um, it seems to be a destination where you can sort of you know spark that team up and get it going uh, but on the other side of it you know the really early stage stuff um, especially hanging out here at Team Square you're seeing more and more of the really exciting things that are companies are getting their first round of funding um, you know and really sort of running really quickly. Um, there seems to be a nice focus on, on getting stuff done, getting some revenue through the door and making sure you've got a real company. Uh, yeah. You know, not just sort of blowing, blowing that, that, that small amount of capital that seems to get raised and, you know, <laughs> there's no slippery dips in offices. This is just purely getting stuff done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no table tennis tables. Mm. Yeah. You talked about there being some other startups that you're investing in as oh, yeah. well. So... Um, Maybe take us a little bit back on your journey through the startups from 1999 to yeah, sure. what you're doing now. Yeah. So um, the startup that I started in 1999 was a, um, 
or it used before it was SaaS, it was called an ASP, an application service provider, which is effectively a website, you know, SaaS, ASP, whatever, they're all websites. Yeah. Uh, we built a website that allowed insurance companies to allocate work on the claim side of things. So a claim came in and you might need a panel beater or a private investigator or a doctor or a lawyer, and we made a platform that allowed that to happen, and that in, is still in play today. Um, wow. So I started that with a co-founder, we brought on some new directors, and they uh, we sold out to those guys, and it still still runs today. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, busily doing its thing, um, which I'm quite proud of. So on after we sort of sold out, uh, sold out to the other directors of that one, um, I went in and did consulting and, and you know, was a, a consultant dev. Um, after a little while, uh, got itchy again. <laughs> did some more startup stuff uh, up in Sydney, but um, really the the reason you know the, my ability to sort of help these things out sort of came from. Uh, a good stroke of luck when I was the I was actually the first certified zero developer that wasn't a Kiwi, so I got onto that bandwagon pretty quickly and yeah. built some zero stuff, the accounting some package. People, zero yeah. the accounting package and yeah. also invested heavily in their stock uh, here when it came out in Australia, uh, and uh, so that you know that that had a fairly significant multiplier um, over the first couple of years on the Australian stock exchange and managed to do quite well out of that and then take that and actually invest into some. Smaller, you know, small startup companies in a, in, a, in their angel rounds in their first 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 time, they took any external capital in. So yeah, yeah. So you do angel investment now yeah. as well. So you've got uh, the recruitment business that you've got, and yep. you've invested in some other yep. startup businesses. What are they that you're investing in at the moment? So um, uh, Pin Payments, which is a payments gateway. Um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Grant from Perth, um, started that up, and uh, it's you know competes with. PayPal and Braintree and Stripe, um, but they're a little Aussie one, and they're they're doing great guns there. Um, they're really focusing on helping, um, you know, these first-time merchants um, be able to take money online, um, right. which is a massive growing industry. Yeah, um, and they're and they're doing really well with that. So that's that was exciting. Uh, helping, you know, as I said, a mate of mine I've known for ages, sort of get that first thing off the ground. One of multiple investors there certainly wasn't just me. Um, Guide, which is a um, an application that allows you to, um, it's effectively a queue for your movies, uh, about to release some cool stuff that sits on the Apple TV, mm. which allows you to um, take your curated movie list and then actually stream them from whatever underlying platform that is, whether it be Apple TV or Netflix or Hulu or whatever. So it provides a meta layer and a really great way of actually um, being able to um, classify which ones you like. Um, and you can do it in a, with your mates as well. So you, know, okay. you can have a shared list of, you know, it's solving the problem of what do we want to watch? Yeah. Uh, which is a, you know, an ongoing problem. You stare at the TV, you just don't know what to watch. Well, if you can actually use this application to mash your list together, answer a few questions, and then throw up a list of things that you all want to watch. Um, Does it find cool. the cheapest place to it play will. it from as well? Yeah. 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 Well, right location, right, uh, right, right um, geo region and stuff, all that sort of stuff is coming. So cool. there's a, a, yeah, the layer across the top of, of these um, platforms is uh, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so other things you have in the building is uh, tagged. Tagged is a, platform that allows a brand, uh, we automatically curate their um, Instagram feed and attach it to their products on the e-commerce store. So um, whilst browsing an e-commerce uh, store, you can see social proof, real people using your, those actual products in real time. And it drives... Uh, it drives on Instagram, for example. Oh, yeah, so it actually keeps them on platform. So it keeps them on the, the brand's e-commerce site. 
yeah. but it pulls in via our platform uh, gotcha. the curated feed, which actually like it's that product. So when you're on that product, you see people using that actual product. So we're able to attach a whole bunch of metadata to it in real time. And uh, so it, it really drives um, the purchase conversions. And, so you um, might say, oh, wow, my friend has this or this celebrity yep. has this product. Yeah, so we attach yeah. a whole bunch of metadata to Instagram stuff yeah. um, and, and bring that into the e-commerce platform and keep them on platform and drive the sales, which is, um, is going great guns. There's some really big brands using that and they're, they're loving it. Yeah, wow. And then, and then, what else have we is got? Is the one Rob's working in? Is that one? Yes. Of your business? Yeah. 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 So, um, so Dunsafe is is uh, Dunsafe.com is uh, one of my startups. I'm a founder. Three mats. We started that one, and it's a uh, it's an OHNS system, a web based, a web first OHNS system. Uh, pretty dry thing, but ultimately, anyone who's got employees has an obligation to make sure that they're safe at work. Um, you know, to the degree that you know the legislation says that if someone hurts themselves, you know. You, you, as a director, you're probably going to go to jail. So, you know, as much as a lot of companies ignore this stuff, it's really, really important. Um, but traditionally, this software has been uh, in smaller companies non-existent. In larger companies, just lots of legacy, lots of you know, terrible uh, desktop-based '90s stuff. Yeah. Uh, we built this software because one of the other mats uh, had had another company that, that required it, um, and uh, his other company has 600 staff. Um, and English as a second language was a whole was over half of them. So uh, he needed a platform that was easy for people to use. And yeah. obviously, once a, a safety platform is easy to use, then the data within it is, is more relevant and, and so forth. So um, it can do uh, you know small companies right up to large companies such as uh, SunCorp and uh, Austral which are two of our largest enterprise customers. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What um, else? Yeah, so oh, um, one more. Uh, Harvard, uh, Harvard just uh, moved into Team Square yesterday. Um, we're just uh, doing an initial round of those guys. Uh, the uh, problem they're solving is um, they've been, they're DevOps consultants. They go into a place and they take uh, existing infrastructure and move it to the cloud. Okay. And the first question you ask is, what does the infrastructure look like? And the answer is, we don't know. Nobody <laughs> knows what, they, what their machines look like. Yeah. Uh, Harvard's a tool that um, takes uh, your cloud credentials and draws in real time what your infrastructure looks like. Uh, so it draws, a, it reverse engineers it. So a lot, mm. there are products that you have to start with that product and draw them in a, in a, with a GUI. This one goes backwards and actually interprets what you've got and shows you. Wow. It's uh, pretty amazing for anyone who runs AWS or cloud infrastructure to be able to visualize what's happening, yeah. both from a, you know, what's connected to what, how much things are costing. One of my favorite stories, that one is one of the first customers that ran it, um, found they ran it and they pointed to a machine and said, what's that? And they said, oh, that's, that's a server that's not hooked up to anything. They're like, no, we shut that down six months ago. We're like, no, you didn't. And it cost you $1,000 a month and it's been sitting that way, you know, already because it was on, it was on page two of the AWS console, you know, where things go to die. Um, yeah. So, you know, for a cost saving thing from a, just a visualizing of how it's all hooked up to be able to identify if you've hooked up things incorrectly. Um, is, it's really important. So as people move to the cloud, um, you know, and the ability for developers to spin up these environments willy-nilly, mm. um, it, it, it has this problem where this sprawl just goes everywhere and it's hard to visualize what's running, what's not, how much it's costing, you know, how it's all connected up. So yeah, quite a, quite a diverse range of things. Really diverse, yeah. yeah. I've got two questions that spin sure. out of that. Um, the first one is around, like, how do you, you're involved in all of those businesses. Mm -hmm. How do you manage that? How do you stay abreast of that? And what roles do you play? And how uh, do you organize yourself? That's a good question. And it's evolved over time. So, you know, speaking from uh, today, which is, you know, early January 2016. So yeah. uh, look ahead search is, is my, my day job. 
you know, I have a team um, and I have you know, a business partner and, and it's, it's the thing that, that sort of I, it takes up the vast majority of my time. Mm. However, as time's moved on and my staff are fantastic, so I've been able to sort of free myself up from, you know, a lot of day-to-day stuff there and, and have those guys, help those guys succeed. Um, these companies, some of them are closer than others. So Dunsafe is one of mine that I'm, you know, I care deeply about. I own a big chunk of it, and you know, I want to see it succeed. Some other things are just investments, but um, all of those ones I'm in almost daily contact with. A lot of Slack rooms. So I think I have 12 yeah. or 13 Slacks, which a lot of them are muted, but um, everyone knows if they need me, I'm there. For people that don't know, Slack's the yeah. iPhone app that you yeah, use I, for team communication. Exactly yeah. right. So it's effectively uh, the new school IRC. Um, you know, they're they're, they're Comms, it, it's just a real-time chat thing, and they can at, they can notify me if they need me. Um, yeah. And um, I guess the role that I'm playing with most of these is sort of watching a lot of the stuff go by and chiming in as required. Mm. Um, I think that um, a lot of the value now is um, you know they obviously come to me if they need to help build their team, um, but my history of doing a lot of this startup has been around managing the relationships between people, whether it be co-founders. I've had, a, I've had a lot of them, um, you know, and staff. So uh, as much as I used to be the tech guy, um, it's not the case anymore. Certainly don't want to be relying on me to write any code, but yeah. sort of dealing with people is something that I really enjoy Yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, in the businesses that you have invested in, what, what attracts you to them and why, like what do you look for in investing in them and getting things started? It's, um, look, it's cliche, anyone will say it, but it's, it's always the people. Um, like it's, a lot of these things, because they're early, a lot of them are early, a lot of them are sort of pre-product, pre-product pre-revenue. So it's, it's people that I click with that I think can get this stuff done. Um, you know, they need to be, they need to be ambition, uh, ambitious. Uh, you know, they need to get along well with each other. Um, you know, and they need, to be, they need to be doing something that's got a, a pretty big problem to solve. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of these, uh, a lot of these founders are, uh, were friends of mine. You know, I've known them for, for a long time. And, um, you know, I, I've, when I mentor and, and talk about this stuff and I give some of the, um, some, lead some of the sessions at things like Founder Institute is, you know, dating your co-founders is something that I, a bit of advice that I give to a lot of people. If you can spend time with someone, you know, before you fully engage with them as a co-founder, then you'll probably learn a lot about them that, um, that it's really good to know before you sort of you know jump into a relationship. So, a lot of these people have been on my radar for a long time, and then you know some of them are like, "Hey, I've got this idea. Can you help?" Um, and the help from me is usually, "Yeah, okay, look, that's a good idea. You know, go do your prototype. Let's get some. Let's see if we can actually make it something." And and it really helpful is you know when we sort of start raising raising that first round is when I really kick into gear and, and try try and help as much as I can. Yeah. So for you, is it, you know, I'm trying to, I guess, uncover a bit about what drives you and what you really care about. And you talked a bit about how you love helping people work together and managing relationships. Is that the thing that really gets you going and trying to work out ways to make a new enterprise thrive because you can see a bit of magic there? Or is it, you know, the problem that's being tried to solve from this new venture? Or is it uh, a combination of both? Well, it's a combination of, but it's, it really is that team and it's... It's a common theme in everything that I do, um, that identifying, identifying people that I think will work well together seems to be something that I, 
I have history in doing. Um, and it may in fact be from having quite a few relationships that haven't worked out quite well as founders. Yeah, yeah. Um, and being knowing when to, you know, when to, to let it go and when to push and, and sort of mediate it a lot, you know. Um, you know, I do bubble stuff down to, you know, what is the problem we're solving? But quite often, it's not the, the problem of the company. You know, it's the problem of the people. So what, what, you know, why are we not seeing eye to eye? You know, and, and having, I call them, you know, grown up conversations mm. without sort of, you know, flipping tables and getting all emotional about it is, is something that, you know, founders and um, business partners need to be able to do. Yeah. Um, and I think having a little bit of a, it's a weird combination of a extremely um, logical analytical side and uh, compassion for going, look, this is a really, you know, this is a crucial conversation. Like we're talking about equity here. We're talking about, you know, who's, um, you know, who's, is the, equi is the equity and effort ratios aligned? Because as soon as they're not, you know, shit will go south. Um, yeah. So, you know, trying to figure that stuff out and, and being the third party observer as the investor or whatever, I can see this quite often when they can't because they're you know, elbows deep in whatever they're doing. Mm. So, you know, sometimes it's having conversations with multiple founders and, and mediating or at least getting to the point where we can have a, a, that adult conversation around, hey, listen, look, I know that you guys aren't on the same page. We need to fix this and we need to talk about it right now and doing that until its problem's gone away. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's one of the first conversations we had was about uh, that very thing yep. in one of the businesses that I'm looking at. Yep. And I mean, just thinking about that and dating, you know, that's, it's a great, the equity conversation in particular is a great practice conversation because it's difficult to have. Mm -hmm. You're, you're thinking about what ifs and the future, and you're talking about some things that are quite emotive sometimes, and to do and are to do with power relationships, yep. and you know you're dealing with it. You try to anticipate well, where's, how do we avoid people feeling guilty and feeling resentment, and they're very easy conversations to not have. Exactly right. Yeah, everybody puts them on the back burner, and it's never a good idea. Um, recently, it's it's. I've been thinking a lot about it and a lot of it's about, you know, the signals that the things send, you know, it's the, oh, 60, 40, right. So you're worth one and a half times more than I am. Like, mm. is that true? You know, is that, is that the message you want to send when that's what you slide across the table and go, I'm, I'm in for 60 and I think you're in for 40, you know, and interestingly enough, you know, at the beginning of the thing, when it's just an idea and it's just a couple of people shooting the shit and there's li literally nothing there then like if I get in, if I get advised to, asked to advise at that level, it's like, you guys need to get this pretty damn even if it's right at the beginning. You know, if one person's been busting their gut for 12 months and they've got something to show for it and there's, you know, there's things happening, then by all means, you know, have those two things, you know, have a, have a discussion around the value of what's been done, but know that the value going forward is, you know, it, there's still a lot to do. You know, I personally have had these conversations with my co-founders and have had to readjust equity because I haven't been able to hold up my end of the bargain because yeah. I, you know, I, I got distracted with other things and they're still going a million miles an hour. So you know, I've reduced my equity down to a stake that reflects the things we'd done up until that point. And it was a hard conversation. You know, it, it is emotional. It's really, really hard to not go, screw you, um, either get the hell out, which is not a good option because you know, there was a lot of value provided to a certain point, or get the hell in, which is not a good option because obviously if I, if I could, I would. So you know, there's a, there's, moving things around there to make sure everyone sort of go, okay, cool, now we've redistributed it, um, let's move forwards. And there's plenty of um, you know, legal ways to do that. And uh, the interesting thing is, is it's all well and good to sign those legal documents, but if 
you know, 10 or 12 months down the track or 11 months before the 12 month vesting period kicks in that you go, okay, look, I haven't done my thing or you haven't done your thing, let's sign the thing. And then there's still someone going, I'm still not right. Then that's another awkward discussion to have because you know, like everybody signed the thing. You know, nobody's really thinking about the, the divorce when they're getting married, right? Yeah. Like the way you're talking there, like it's, I don't, I don't hear a lot of people talking about that when they talk about equity and particularly, you know, um, like you hear a lot of bad stories of people just holding onto their contract or wanting to screw the other person and then the relationship just going, going south. Um, I read a little bit of Brene Brown. I don't know if you know Brene Brown, who talks a lot about vulnerability yeah. and openness and authenticity. And she talks, she's not a, you know, a tech person in any way. But I'm just, there's some parallels between some of the stuff she talks about and what you're talking about there. And she talks about in her meetings how, in her own business, how they talk, well, they have, they, they just have opportunities for people to say, something's not feeling right and this is a story that's going on in my head and I just need to talk about it. And they encourage it. And when someone says something like that, everyone stops what they're doing and they pay attention to that person and they, they work out what's going on. And it almost sounds like that's what you're talking about in some of these discussions with founders, you know, that, you know, you build such an important thing is to have that relation, the level of relationship where you can be really open and honest with each other and say, look, this equity arrangement just isn't quite right and this is what I'm feeling and we need to kind of do something about it or else it's going to breed into something bad. Absolutely. And it's hard to, you know, when it's early days and everyone's all excited about stuff, um, you know, it's, it's, people put it on the back burner and, you know, you slice up the pie and off we go. Um, but, you know, it takes years for this stuff to happen. And, um, yeah. like, I personally know now that I'm not, you know, I shouldn't be holding large chunks of companies because, you know, unless it's, you know, unless it's the one I'm focused on because it's not fair to other people. And that's really, like, uh, it's hard to, for someone to go, well, it's, it shouldn't be hard, but quite often it is to go, look, I've got too much. Uh, in multiple occasions, I've, I've given equity back yeah. And I've allocated to someone else because I'm like, I'm not comfortable. Like, your expect, like the expectation, if I had a company and someone held that, then the expectation, I'd expect them to do more. And I can't do that. Therefore, let's fix this problem and let's fix it now. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and over time, I've realized that, yeah, like that, that is the worst possible thing is that if there's something, there's a background thread in someone's head going, ah, you know, like, come on, that should be doing more. Um, that said, um, you know, as time trundles on, you know, people's situation changes and you need to allow for that as well. So, you know, uh, there's a couple of times where there has been a whole bunch of effort done right up front, which was, you know, without that, there wouldn't be a company. Mm. And then things changed. So being able to, uh, first of all, legally do that without massive tax implications to people is something to get re- up front first. But that's really a, an artifact of the conversation rather than the thing that everyone decides when I talk about it. Like it needs to be, have a really strong conversation. And then, you know, at the end of it, it's like, cool. So we all agree that, you know, if over the next 12 months, all of us aren't doing these things, then when we sign this thing, you know, half of your equity is going to go to you and half's going to go to you. And then your stuff's going to shrink down. Yeah. Which is like, you know, it's easy to nod and smile and go, <laughs> yeah, okay. But 11 months down the track, I guarantee you someone's going to be pissed off. Yeah. Um, something interesting that seems to be brewing in the business world too is around social enterprises and people giving a lot of money to, you know, charities yep. and and uh, different causes as well. And it, it feels like, and B Corps as well is another thing that's springing up. And it, it feels like, you know, some of the stuff that you're talking about and 
um, and those kind of things too, it's almost like the structure or the legal structures that are available for businesses needs to mature a little bit for a bit more of a dynamic world or a diverse business world. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. There's a, um, uh, there's a couple of things that are around that are sort of, sort of aiming down that thing like the Atlassian, uh, the pledge 1%, uh, Atlassian does that, where they take 1% of their equity, 1% of their staff time, 1% of their profit, and I think they give it away. It's a, it's a global right. thing. Yeah. Um, TeamSquare actually has done that. So yeah. we, have a, we have that exact same thing happening. Um, so, you know, and when companies get big, that turns into a non-insignificant amount of yeah. you know, equity, uh, profit, and, and staff time. And when you allocate 1% of your staff time to go out and do some charitable stuff, it, it, it has an impact. Yeah. Um, yeah, the interesting thing about the for good and, the imp- and in doing impact and stuff like that is that, you know, the basis of all those things is a good company. Yeah. You know, and a good company comes from um, founders and leaders that are, you know, that are in agreement with what they're trying to do and that like each other, you know, or, or at least have a lot of respect for each other that, you know, they're all doing what they need to do. And that there's no, you know, there's no one sort of raging that it's not happening the way they want it to. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I think the social good stuff is amazing, and more, and a lot of the founders that I deal with, you know, are great people that that love helping other people. As we start to wrap up, I've got two questions that I end the podcast with, and the sure. first is, what do you dream about disrupting sometime in the future, or, or over the, you know, the course of the next ten years? Oh, that's that's a <laughs> that's a pretty significant uh, question. Look, I, I think the term disruption is sort of thrown around a little bit, but um, it feels to me that um, you know, uh, talk about software and you know, software reading the world and so forth. It's there's a there's a a big um, problem brewing that you know there's just not enough software devs to go around. Yeah. Um, so finding a way to be able to disrupt the the flow from school and so forth you know, into this thing where you're either going to, you know, program software or, or be programmed by software. Um, I hope that in the future there's a, a way for you know kids my age to be able to actually you know walk into this stuff and and have it as a um, you know a really solid career choice, which it obviously already is. But 20 years ago, when I was in high school, um, I was the only person doing computer programming. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, disrupting that and then um, I also think that um, the idea of a, of, a, of a job and sitting in an office in a certain space is sort of will disappear over time. Um, more and more of the great companies that are hiring um, here in Australia are sort of thinking about remote and, you know, the thought to say that, you know, we want to hire people that, are, that can come into an office in the CBD in Melbourne for eight hours a day. Like, it just limits everything so well but so much but you know I, I do hope that here in Australia that we can actually uh, create you know the environment that allows these people to succeed and and um, and grow at the rate we need it to and that you know Australia's a great destination so maybe you know disrupting you know the the, the idea of a software company being lo- headquartered anywhere would be really cool um, yeah you know, we help some people hire remote teams and, and there's a special skill in running a remote team. So I think disrupting the thought of just having everyone sitting in a room getting together, although there's a great deal of value in that, um, it's probably not going to be that way forever. Yeah. Are you talking about um, mature age people getting into programming or the, the kids coming through? Either way. I mean, the kids coming through is obviously um, going forwards uh, a really important thing. 
computer programming is about solving problems mostly. Um, you know, the code bit at the end is, should be the bit at the end. You know, it's the bit you do once you've sort of had a think about it and, and come up with a way to solve the problem. Um, I think there's plenty of people out there who are great problem solvers, who just haven't thought that I could, you know, implement some software after I've sort of solved this problem. So uh, I imagine over time, over the next 20 years, there'll be plenty of people who are out of a job because, you know, software came along and made it go away. That's not to say that they don't have the skills to solve problems. They just may not have the skills to codify that solution once they've done it. So, you know, I, I, I do hope that over time, you know, that we can get some of those people back into our game. Uh, I see some amazing uh, older people who I talk to on a daily basis who have got great experience and the great ability. But, you know, yeah, figuring out how to, to do the last little coding bit is, is their challenge. Yeah, and it's still, although there's, I guess there's a lot of, it's a lot easier now than when you were in high school to pick up those skills. So there's yep. a lot of tools out there available, but there's still quite a gap to yep. yeah, uh, very, people very accessing that. Yeah. Um, and the last question I ask people is, this podcast is called Subtle Disruptors, and it's, I guess, for people that are uh, on this journey or are, you know, subtly disrupting something, um, but may maybe not quite as far along the path as what you are. What is a small thing that you can suggest to people who might be listening that they can do in their own life to move themselves, you know, in this direction or along that path? Well, it's, um, I guess it's a to give a little bit of leaf out of out of my book and what I think really um, changed the way that I um, started to interact with people was that I just started offering to help. I literally said, what can I do to help to everybody that I ran into? And it, it started with, um, you know, when I started working with Steve. And, you know, as, a, as, as part of the way we help, is like, what can we do to help? And, and, you know, there's plenty of times where, where we can't get someone a job. But there's plenty of ways I can help. I've been a software developer for 15 years. Um, and a lot of these people were new. But then it sort of extended right out into, you know, these are the advisory work I do for, for startups. Um, how can I help? And, and some people, if you ask them enough, some, you might have to prod them a few times, um, usually ask for something and then go and do it. Um, you know, those two things, offering to help and then following through, um, making some introductions if you can, you know, put two and two together, um, it becomes a, has a multiplier effect. So first of all, you know, um, be interested in people, listen to the answers and then offer to help. Or if you listen to an answer and you can just say, hey, I can introduce you to that or I can do this or here's some books I've read or whatever. Um, if you're, you only need to be a little bit further ahead of that person to, to have some sort of value. And it's interesting, you know, um, thinking about um, when we put mentor programs and stuff together is that the most value comes from people who are sort of a couple of years ahead because yeah. they're not CEOs of, of multinationals. Yeah. They're like, yeah, yeah, I did that last week or last <laughs> year. So the short answer is, I think, is just, just genuinely offer to help people and, and then do it if they ask for it. Yeah. I think that's a great tip. Nada, thanks so well, much for talking to us today. No worries. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, 
and I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now.